Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For season 10 of the podcast, I'm interviewing a dozen futurists about what life will be like for humans 30 to 50 years from now. Today's guest is Professor Solhail Inayatola. He's a political scientist, futurist, author, and the inaugural UNESCO Chair in Future Studies. In our discussion, Solhail paints a picture of life in 2073. He describes a peer-to-peer economy moving at lightning speeds that will lead to incredible abundance. He shares examples of how leaders in Abu Dhabi and New Zealand are thinking about and designing their futures. We finished the conversation with Sohil's thoughts on what we're doing today that the humans of 2073 will look back at in disbelief. Sohil, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Great to be here. Thanks so much. I'm very excited to have you here and you're joining us all the way from Islamabad. The first question I want to start with is if you can paint a picture of what life will be like for humans in the year 2073. As someone who engages in future studies, it's a study of probable preferred and alternative futures. I can tell you research we've been doing with different groups. I can tell you what I hope for or think given the patterns. And I would be scanned to say, here's what it will look like. I would never want to place so much confidence nor would I want anyone else to do that as well. So you're a good responsible, you're a good responsible futurist, is what you're saying. Yeah, I know people try I me. Mean, the number of times people ask me to be a crystal ball. And there was one large project we did with UNDP for Egypt. And the person who wrote the report said, better than a crystal ball, the futures of Egypt. And as I read the piece, he said, a crystal ball assumes one person knows. But you can ask the wrong question. And the crystal ball, you don't make the crystal ball. Someone else does. So better than a crystal ball, you design, organize, manufacture. You create the crystal ball. That's when it moves from uh, anticipation to imagination to really emancipation. That's, to me, where I would like to take the study of the future and respond to your question, what could be the year 2073? So given that two reports we did for two large, large countries, very small countries, usually in Abu Dhabi, what emerged in the Abu Dhabi study was well, we want to be the spaceport for the planet. And they saw space as physical and virtual. And then the second part of that, we want little Abu Dhabi town to be in every part of the world. But this was quite interesting to me. The space, virtual, and the notion of culture becoming, their culture becoming ubiquitous everywhere. And if you go back to Abu Dhabi, it was a little fishing village. When we go to 2700, that's quite a leap, going to quite an quite a unimaginable future. The government of New Zealand, they asked us a similar project, the Infrastructure Commission, and emerged from interviews and workshops was in 2073, well-being is the main mode of measuring everything. They started with infrastructure, but they said infrastructure is not just buildings and roads. Infrastructure is nature. Infrastructure is culture. But they want to start to imagine a world organized around well-being, how we measure it, how we fund it, how culture plays, how design plays. And for them, the core of that was a change in the world economy. So a piece I did with them and later around them was, today we have a world economy where the core metaphor is invisible hands. 
the rise of East Asia and Nordic countries has been visible hand, meaning inclusive capitalism, stakeholder capitalism. Everyone's engaged. Phase three, what came out of the New Zealand study was shared hands. It's really moving to a peer-to-peer economy, going from the old model of someone owns the taxis to Uber become more efficient by bringing taxis to citizens. They own the taxis. But Uber still gets a profit to phase three, meaning the taxi drivers, the Uber drivers own the company. So a fluid peer-to-peer economy where money keeps on moving at lightning speeds, at speeds we can't imagine today, which essentially leads to a situation of incredible abundance because I trust you, you trust me. There's no one holding it. There's no economic constipation as it were. And then scenario four is really after 2070 is magical hands. And that may be too far for many people, but I remember the philosopher, I did my PhD on him, in the 1950s, he talked about a future where mind enters technology. These are spiritual thinking. So mind is spirit, vibration, manifestation, the deepest part of who we are. He said, one day mind enter te- enters technology. When I read his work in the centers, they called mind enters technology. What is he talking about? And suddenly in 2022, it's so obvious. It's the AI revolution. So take that to 2023, the way you're talking about from flight to millions and millions of passengers. So this is a magical world economy where, in fact, it's AI plus spirit, magical ends. So this is outside my ability to understand even, but I can see experiments in meditation, experiments in prayer, in terms of how they impact well-being, and then moving to the notion meditation with AI. What does that look like? I know a lot of the reports, the fear of AI, I understand that. AI and weaponization, I understand that. But this is the other side. What could it look like? How can we imagine that? So imagine a world economy by 2070, 2130, shared hands, magical hands. Imagine then the nation state giving away. It was created 15th, 16th century. It gives away to bioregions, to cultural reasons to basically an EU with Asia, you know, six, seven big regions united. But this is how I would see 2017 going on even further. So very much, I know it sounds naive. I was talking to you, I was in Serbia and Croatia with some friends and we said, oh, wow, that's a, is it, that sounds like that song, Imagine. I said, okay, it does. Uh, whatever, that's, if that's the poetic license, the structural approaches the world economy can't manage these regulatory divisions by nation states. Climate change is showing us it won't work. I do a lot of work with international policing with intrapolar groups, and every new tech clearly shows the limits of law enforcement bound by the nation state. And law enforcement, as a former head of Interpol said, Ronald Brown, we're always catching up. That can't be a situation. So I loved it when the recent, when the war against Ukraine started, Ukrainian refugees had to leave, Interpol was ready. They immediately sent agents over the borders because they knew, yes, people are leaving, and we know saboteurs, child abductors will be waiting at the borders. So this was they were using force. That here's, I mean, you know, me and you, I mean, well, I don't hang around child abductors. I never think about that, right? But they always said, no, anytime there's refugees, evil works. So how do we use predictive modeling? not to monitor surveillance citizens, but to get ready 
where people, every time there's a tech change disruption, bring out the worst of humanity. So I want to imagine 2073 with you with the best of humanity, beyond the nation state, visible hands to share of hands, magical hands, climate change being the impetus that gets us to move towards biomimicry, a nature-based world economy. You described this, what the future could bring us. What would you say are one or two things, barriers for us reaching that? Because as you describe that, I'm thinking about human nature. And if you gain, then I lose. You know, that's been the mindset for millennia, correct? And what you're describing is, no, if you gain, I gain too. We all gain. There's this world of abundance. What would stand in the way of us achieving that? So one, okay, within classical Western thinking, the three sons of Abraham, right? Judeo is a Christian Islam, right? There, if they go brothers fighting, of course, there everyone loses. If they go shared view of consciousness, and the challenge there is a good versus evil. If you go towards Buddhist, Indic, Cynic, then it becomes yin, yang, both are part of each other. Now, both have their problems. One perhaps is too accepting, the other, perhaps, is too aggressive, pushing against. In either case, the core epistemology and worldview challenges this world of abundance. Now, my way out is, is through this uh, concept called problem. So there's normally people want equilibrium. I want equilibrium in my life. Right? When things get disrupted, I want to go back to equilibrium. You know, my kids, my partner also says I'm so predictable. I always want equilibrium. The promise suggests the goal is dynamic equilibrium. Anytime there's a disruption, then there's a number of choices. Choice one is return to the old equilibrium. So we're seeing that throughout the world, the rise of fascism, the memory of how things were. So let's go back to the old equilibrium and forget how damaging it was. Scenario two is continued growth. Let's just go forward. Forget about climate change. Let's do terraforming. Hope the aliens land next week. Let's don't care about gender equity. Who cares, right? It's worked so far, patriarchy, nation state imperialism. Okay, some people don't like it, but really it's okay. So that's the scenario third is when, in fact, the old equilibrium can't work. We need promo, which is a dynamic equilibrium. And I think I don't want to be the utopian sort of a view of the future that ends. So, of course, this imagination we're talking about always will have its opposite. Whether opposite is good and evil, opposite is yin yang or vidya vidya, good and bad, that struggle, it's going to be there. So, one of my professors, Ashish Nandi, said uh, in his book, Children's Tradition and Utopias, every imagined future is both a utopia and a nightmare for the next generation. <laughs> and I really thought that was powerful because, you know, where I was in my 20s, utopianism, and then, wait a second, the utopia I created is also someone's nightmare. So we want to have the metacognition to understand that, of course, the structures of resistance can be things we try to destroy or they can lead to the next evolutionary future. This is the spiral. Now, for me, it's very clear it's evolutionary dead end. The exception creates the next phase in evolution, not the norm. And we're seeing that through well, the research into in vitro meat that we call the end of the cow. Research into AI, humans having to do less. All climate change uh, battles are all suggesting traditional solutions won't work. We have to go beyond the litany towards systemic changes. But the systemic changes for me are always bounded by narratives. Is the narrative 
we can never get along. There's evolution reasons. Or says, okay, that's true. We accept the data. Can we create a new narrative where abundance is possible? And that becomes the guiding question. So it's really switching our core stories. I know a project we did the Asia Development Bank, and I think I can mention they were part of that project. It was on gender equality. And they said before the measurement was women didn't count. Then as they saw the data that prosperity increases when there's gender equality, they say, okay, counting women became the story. And then now they want to go to woman count. So it's not just about number of females in the board or in economic development problems, but social political power. So this transition I see very interesting. So every step of the way, we kind of transform and expand. So with energy, we go from keep the lights on, scarcity, to as we go through a global solar, wind, alternative energy system, it's actually the connector. How do I connect producers and consumers? And the final stage by 2073, an energy system where you create your own energy adventure, real-time energy information. The early part of the interview where you talked about Abu Dhabi, you talked about New Zealand, uh, just specifically, you, you mentioned Abu Dhabi being the spaceport. Can you talk about what you think space might look like in 50 years? In this case, I was a facilitator. And they described, now they're coming from space as a metaphor of the desert. So it's quite endless space. And space is a grain of sand, meaning infinite time, slow space. So it's fast space going into the stars, slow space going into the moment, and then this notion of their cultural space being everywhere. So this was quite interesting. There's spiritual space, there's beyond Earth space, and there's space as culture. So I'm assuming by 2073, Mars colonies, that transition makes sense. And I'm assuming if we don't manage a sheer to pair solar network, will be doing the Freeman Dyson spaceships direct space energy to Earth, meaning really ecology of incredible abundance. Absolutely. I mean, such abundance. That's, that's so exciting. And you're leaving this the finite resource that the Earth has and potentially tapping into what we think is an infinite set of resources uh, that you know, humanity could access. That's that's it's it's mind-boggling and almost <laughs> impossible to imagine. Yeah, and this is the best part of this. Our work is imagine the future. We do our best. We, I leave the organization to say, no, wait a second. We've imagined from our capacity of today. We're not imagining from our capacity of tomorrow. So that becomes this horizon three where it's outside our imagination. And the part that also helps in terms of dealing with the skeptics, right, is there's macro-historical reasons. If you go to Prisogene, you said when, net, when systems become unstable, then there's a creative minority borrowing from Toynbee, which creates a new equilibrium. In P.R. Sarkar, the philosopher I talked about, when systems go into plastic revolution, when time is galloping, and things aren't sure we create, there's ecos of the side papers. Those are individuals who can serve others, they're humble. They're also warriors in the sense they take up strength, you know, strength. They challenge corruption. 
intellectuals like yourself, new ideas, and there are people who understand money. They understand how important money to flow. When Sadhvipas become Toynbee's creative minority, they imagine the new feature, they coalesce, and they start to move forward. So we got some of that from Ray Anderson's work on cultural creatives, which in the 1960s in the U.S. was 2%, 50% were Democrats, 50% Republicans, and now generally female, ecological, spiritual, or spiritual orientation, and they're rising to 20 30 40%. They've made the difference in many elections. They don't choose political parties. They choose particular issues. In Australia, it was called the Teal Revolution. They chose climate change, not green, not you know liberal or national or labor. So there's a hinge element in terms of evolution can help vote the new future. That doesn't mean we get these dramatic swingbacks, as we know, I mentioned the countries, it's too obvious. But that's 50 years give us that, gives us that time where a vision for the future gets fatigued. I remember when, you know, in the 70s, when my professor said, well, communism dies because it's fatigued. The state pretends to pay, the people pretend to work. Okay. It just gets tired. Everyone just gives up. And so this is people, you know, how long can you raise flags and do this extreme patriarchy? Now? It just gets tiring. So that's what we're hoping for, that the reward comes from this abundance, this sharing, this movement toward this unimaginable future. I have a question on abundance, but I want to ask you about well-being and what you talked about with New Zealand. When you're talking about well-being, are you talking just human well-being? Or are you talking about ecological well-being, holistic well-being? What do you mean there? So what I learned from them is uh, this anticipation to imagination to emancipation. So say... So well-being first is inner, right? Whether it's meditation, yoga, tai chi, running, getting time for healthier food and lifestyle. Then there's the well-being of our ecosystem. We know more electric cars is good, but having pods, AI green pods everywhere is better. Moving away from cars and mobility is better. So it's that link between human systems and ecosystems. The third is nature regeneration. All, all the literature everywhere is talking about how do we regenerate nature. Nature is guiding our economy. And they also focus on this next part, which is cultural well-being. Because there's multiple cultures in New Zealand. They're thinking, no, each culture has to find its, its sharing space and safe space. And we can use concepts from each culture. So it's Maori well-being nature well-being, human well-being. And then clearly, as we spoke about, it became clear technology is a critical variable that can help create well-being. But technology without the well-being paradigm is just we just work harder. Now we work smarter and less. And James Dater and uh, I think Sunwong Park, they had an article 20 years ago called The Dream Economy. I said, we're all talking about the information economy, but start to think about the, the aesthetics of the dream economy. And there was a precursor for, I remember what South Korea did, moving from GDP to what they started to play around with gross national core. Cool, cool as in, in, as in cool? Cool. Yeah. yeah, there was this one, I think, American author who came up with the term, but that became, if we invest in culture, what it will lead to? And there was a BBC report that said, in fact, 
every $100 spent on Korean K-pop, Korean music, Korean soap operas, led to $400 of purchase of Korean electronic products. So this is that kind of unimaginable. Cultural creates a new framework. They will let's start to imagine this aesthetics of the dream economy. And so I'm talking about in terms of magical economy, magical events. But essentially, that's the next wave after this current move into information economy. Getting back to abundance, which is a very appealing place to be in 50 years, a world of abundance where we have the resources we need. We have food, we have water, we have energy, you know, anything that we can imagine. Where does purpose fit into that? Because a lot of us achieve our purpose by working, by getting these things for our families, you know, and and that's where we get our self-worth. Have you thought about how purpose fits into this world of abundance? Every time there's a transition, purpose has to be reinvented. And so within today's terms, we call it emotional purpose, being caring, being a teacher, spiritual purpose. But I think what I learned from you, no, don't do that. That's today's purpose. The new challenges will create a new invention of purpose that we can't even predict now. But the core research question is yours. As we transition, reinvent purpose. Without that purpose reinvention, we just get one, the old equilibrium, which won't work because you'll be retired 68 and have nothing to do. The obvious transition, teacher, caring, nurturing, spiritual, but then the less obvious, what might be that we can't think about today. Final question, which is, uh, I'm so interested, you know, it's happening in the United States, it's probably happening in other parts of the world uh, where the people of today are judging the people of the past 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, based on the social conventions of the day and canceling them and, and so on and so forth with this idea that we're perfect today and we're not perfect today. And so my question is, what are we doing today that the people of 2073 are going to look back at and just shake their heads at in disbelief? So we finished a project for WHO, which became a little minor. Brooke is, it was called the end of the cow. It was chapter one. Chapter two was learning from anywhere into anyone. And the end of the cow was given climate change, a revolution in in vitro cellular agriculture should basically make most animal factories disappear. And world vegetarianism will be the norm. There will, of course, be organic carnivores, organic omnivores, whole range of diversity. It will be a food court, but the main dish, I think, will be cellular agriculture. So that's one thing our future assessors will look on us. Oh, my God, all that time spent on inefficient farming techniques. So that's that's pretty clear to me. I know some people get very upset at that, but that's that that that's exciting. If I if I can just interject for a moment, that's really exciting. I think in the United States, it's six percent who are vegetarian. So that's a huge transition, right? In fifty years, going from six to six percent to almost everybody, and then obviously, you know, cows and livestock and and farming are a huge emitter of carbon. So you know, that's an accelerant, right? Is well, we need to change this. We need to change our relationship with livestock and and with our food supply. So, you know, while it's a long way to go in a short time, I think 50 years is a short time, it has to be done. And I have to say the number of workshops I've done with farming federations and farming towns, 
conversation starts with fear and each one says, we've already noticed. <laughs> it's no yeah. way out. Five, 10 years ago, it was, oh God, another wacko to know we're seeing it. Milk, is, milk production is changing. Then the whole, you can see they're seeing the shift. I think Dean, the largest milk company in the U.S. went back. We have three milks in our house. We have cow's milk, we have oat milk, and we have um, almond milk. And the kids drink cow's milk, but that will change. And we'll be, you know, there will be no animal products in, for as far as milk anyway. So 50 years, if food is culture, so food is not just what we consume. There's a whole cultural dynamics around that cultural transition, I can't predict. I can see the drivers for this obvious world vegetarian regime. And that doesn't mean everyone's going to be vegetarian. It just means the norm changes. That's, that's, I'm not making a prediction on numbers. I mean, we can see the trend. But what counts as normal would shift. The second shift really is something we talked about for 10 years, but COVID made it possible. Uh, learning anytime, anywhere from anyone. And ChatGPT is questioning every teacher on the planet. How do I assess? How do I examine? That revolution starting, go to 50 years. The nature of the PhD, the nature of the university, the nature of schooling, I just think it has to change in dramatic ways. Every school I work with, and look, we can see the warnings, we can see the transition. Who do you want to be as a teacher? And the good ones say, aha. I can work with young people in a personalized education. You know, I, I, I can have people all over the world enter my class. As a student, I can take courses from every learning institute in the world. We did this as a government of Malaysia. They said, okay, we're going from bricks to mortar, to jukebox, to the uberfication, to nano, nano accreditation. So it's not the university, but every aspect of skills gets accredited so we know who's doing it well and who's not. And we create ecologies of global accreditation. So the end of the university, the end of the high schools, we know in primary schools, we may need for other reasons. So that to me is the two big shifts going the next 50 years. In terms of education, I think there's the, there's the education, there's kind of the building blocks, and we probably will need to come together for that. Uh, you know, particularly when we're when we're young, but then there's the learning, which is done anywhere, anytime. It's done YouTube. It's done in books. It's done you know collaboratively through conversations like this. We're in we're ten time zones away, thousands and thousands of miles, and yet we can learn from each other, and that's really really exciting. And extrapolate that out five decades from now. Yeah, that that has to be the norm. I like the way you frame it. There's a social cohesion, learning about others, how to be caring, and then there's other aspects to it. And I think those, let's see which evolutionary experiments went out. The school 1L, because it was like the factory. The factory is disappearing. So now there's an evolutionary bifurcation. The old advantage, evolutionary advantages aren't there anymore. So what's the new evolutionary advantage? I think it's going to be learning anywhere, anytime, anyone. It'll be freedom, and then some type of accreditation, micro, micro, nano accreditation, which puts the platform into place. Our work as futurists, I think, is one is to put out that imagination, how it emancipate us. Second, to help those who might be hurt, 
lost in despair, vulnerable in transition to support them. We don't want the teacher to go into despair. I mean, I remember I did one workshop with Farming Federation, and I've told this before, and group one, perhaps playfully, perhaps not, said, what's the solution to the in vitro revolution, semi-vitro medical revolution? They go, it's easy. Kill the vegans, kill the scientists, kill the coffee drinkers. <laughs> and I said, my coffee drinkers, the first two I get, right? They were coffee drinkers early adapters. So then when we met the different group in a small city, I said, okay, this group said this, what do you think? They said, aha, uh-huh. no, we're going to use, find the early adapters and become the scientists ourselves. The farmer as scientists doing precision farming, looking at new modes of innovation, having the vegans part of our research group so we learn from them. We don't have to accept their worldview, we learn from them and do something novel. And that's when we move the discussion from fear to opportunity. This has been a fabulous conversation. You've painted a very, very bright picture of the future. Sohail, thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. We will return next week with another futurist who will paint a picture of how life on Earth will change over the next 30 to 50 years. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening. And thank you for being a genius.